Welcome to Media Mass, a sermon from the Proletarian Contrarian. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And this is a new project for us. Uh, we're planning to use this series um, as a lens through which to examine specific tendencies and phenomena that we've seen, specifically between the tension of audiences' art and the influences of, of capital as it relates to mass media. Yeah, so basically this will be a series on media literacy um, bolstered by media studies, um, which is a, a portion of um, kind of both of our degrees in a way. I mean, I have a film degree, Nick has a, a writing degree, um, not specifically media studies, but there's definitely a Venn diagram there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that stuff falls under the, the umbrella of uh, useless art degrees. Um. <laughs> Fart degrees. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be discussing a particular bugbear um, that we both that we both have that vexes both of us uh, called world building. Yeah. So for the uninitiated, world building is a phrase. It's it's been around forever. Honestly, um, it's something that sci-fi and fantasy um, fans would probably mm-hmm. be more well aware of. Yeah, um, the the concept has existed, I, I guess, as long as like stories have been told back to like the troglodyte, like telling each other like cave dwelling uh, paintings stories or whatever. Um, but I, I think the term has only recently really gained traction within the past couple of decades. Um, you know, I would you, say you even like every- the last decade, honestly. Yeah, maybe even the yeah. last like five years. I don't know. I, I mean, how long I is mean, like uh, well, like maybe let's say a decade because that's as long as fucking uh, Game of Thrones has been on. So, yeah, I think um, I think the explosion of popularity for Game of Thrones really like boosted it into overdrive. Um, the concept of like of literally building a fictional world and then telling a story within it. I think kind of the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons in the past few years has also really, really bolstered um, the popularity of of the term specifically. Yeah. Well, if only the satanic panic would have just eradicated that all. Oh, well, we wouldn't be here so, today. <laughs> this is a Tradcath podcast <laughs> confirmed. <laughs> Actually, the the, tri- the Catholics were pretty much okay with D&D. It was more of an e- evangelical thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. But we do have a really good quote by M. John Harrison, um, who's most well known for the the Verconium series um, that Lewis had found. So yeah, take it away. This this really this really encapsulates our feelings very well. Yes. Um, so M. John Harrison wrote or said, "Every moment of a science fiction story must represent the triumph of writing over world building." Preach it. <laughs> world building is dull. World building literalizes the urge to invent. World building gives an unnecessary permission for acts of writing, indeed for acts of reading. World building numbs the reader's ability to fulfill their part of the bargain because it believes that it has to do everything around here if anything is going to get done, which is exactly what I believe about uh, doing this podcast. I have to do everything around here (laughs) if anything's going to get done. (laughs) That's, oh my God. Um, But enough about... uh, (laughs) Enough about the behind the scenes, <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes, uh, drama. Um, Harrison continues. Above all, world building is not technically necessary. It is the great clomping foot of nerdism. It is the attempt to exhaustively survey a place that isn't there. A good writer would never try to do that, even with a place that is there. It isn't possible, and if it was, the results wouldn't be readable. They would constitute not a book, but the biggest library ever built, a hallowed place of dedication and lifelong study. 
This gives us a clue to the psychological type of the world builder and the world builder's victim and makes us very afraid. That is a fucking banger of a quote, and I, I want to read Harrison's work <laughs> just based on that. Yeah, amen. A uh, fucking man. And uh, give, given our usual um, research proclivities for this kind of show, um, I did briefly look up Harrison's Wikipedia page, and apparently the, the Viriconium series, um, it, it takes place in like a, a world that, has shifting topography huh. which is like a which is like a direct rebuttal to the tolkien-esque drawing up like a map in the beginning of, your, bo- of right. your book right um like he he specifically used that device as like a direct fuck you to world building that's interesting yeah i did a little bit of research myself and i found a guardian article where um it was just a profile on him basically but he says that he likes to piss off physicists basically like he Hell just yes. likes to write worlds yes. and um just laws of physics that don't make sense which like if you're doing sci-fi why wouldn't you do that why wouldn't you mm-hmm. create your own laws of physics it just i don't know it just <laughs> makes sense to me so he seems like a, a cool dude yeah for sure um and we, we can get into my my attitude towards tolkien um and his influence on world building a little later um but I, I guess as a starting off point, we can say kind kind of all fantasy and to some extent even sci-fi, um, the tendency towards world building as we know it today um, came from kind of the template that Tolkien laid out, um, whether or not he intended it as a template. But like, you, you know, there has to be a map. There has to be examples of like exotic sounding uh, fantasy names and fantasy words. Uh, there has to be the, this very fleshed out... Um, world that serves as the structure upon which a story hangs um and that tendency is is detrimental to to storytelling in general i think at at this point in like cultural history yeah definitely i think that gets to what harrison was saying about a library um as opposed to just writing one book The, the tendency is to write you know several books within a book you know um yes obviously the Simmerellian is uh You'll defend it soon, but you know a lot of people see um, the, the indexes in that, or even the indexes in the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, and they say, "Oh, that's what I have to do with my book. I also yes. have to, you know, write an appendix, an index, uh, such and such, um, to make mm-hmm. sense of all these small things that um, that we see throughout the story um, being described." here and there smattered throughout yeah i think there's a very real uh capitalist um uh push behind the the need to do that or or the the tendency to do that right like um i don't know just off the top of my head like harry potter really took off um in part because you could build you you could uh produce and market lego sets you could produce and market video games you could produce and market um role-playing games off of this world you could you could build you could produce and build like a a theme park off of this world that um the story is just one part of the world um experiencing the world or or imagining yourself in the world and then buying the products to enable that imagination um that there's money to be found there there's money to be to be made there and um the, it's it's like the gamification of these worlds that are created that really incentivize that tendency i think oh geez yeah the fucking theme parks that's the new fresh hell really that came <laughs> yes. out of all of this honestly i mean i guess we could say it started with just universal making their islands of adventure 
which the fantasy one, the kind of, you know, just more generic fantasy one became the Harry Potter world. And Mm -hmm. now, of course, we're seeing Disney changing a a, a good portion of the Animal Kingdom to their Avatar world, to Pandora, and the new Star Wars world that was opened. There's a Marvel world that's opening. Marvel world will Um, be coming next. And then who knows what other properties they'll be buying up soon. So, yeah, I mean, it really is. It's, I think, what people enjoy about world building is the experience of the world yes um, and experiences are a thing that you hear a lot of now you know like people are people like to say oh i don't give material gifts i give people experience gifts you know whether it's going to a concert or a ticket to a theme park or you know to a wine tasting or something like that i think we put a lot of stock in this idea of experiences so by world building and and you know loving and really wanting to enjoy world building i think we're we're buying into that ah yes this is an experience this book is an experience the show is an experience but it's still like it's still a product here you know there's still very yes. much the commodification of this experience that you love so i mean basically just capital is inescapable folks that's what we're trying to say <laughs> <laughs> basically yeah i mean it is, and like you, you hear, um, like the Avengers Endgame was described as like a cinematic experience, right? right. It, it was the culmination of, of what, like fucking twenty-one films before it. Um, God, I don't even want to count, but yeah, I think it's something yeah. like that. And um, even more, uh, video games are described as like experiences, like that you that you bring into your home, and 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 you storytelling is done through that way. Um, but I, I think the rise of video games and and the kind of resurgence we've had recently of uh, tabletop pen and paper rpgs like dnd um though the, the, that kind of media definitely deals in um world building and definitely benefits from world building much more so than um a more traditional narrative like a, a book or a movie i'm, I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm not even against world building I, I think i think that we should make that clear like world building as a process as a as a modeling process is it's 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 crafting it's 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 making something creative it's um it, it's it's putting your thoughts and, and making something out of that which is good but i i do think world building and storytelling are two fundamentally um different things and if in in certain types of narratives specifically books and movies um getting hung up on world building uh almost always occurs to the detriment of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for any uh, aspiring artist, be it a a writer or a a filmmaker, really the the nexus of storytelling and world building is is what you should focus on, not just either or. Um, Yes. Because... Um, we do actually have uh, some sources uh, for this episode today. Oh, um, fancy. We have an article entitled Against World Building uh, by Lincoln yeah. Michel. Uh, he's an author of, uh, he's a, he's an editor of uh, a magazine called uh, Gigantic, and then he's also the author of Upright Beasts. Um, he published this piece on electricliterature.com in 2017. Uh, and then we have... Uh, a rebuttal piece uh, called In Defense of World Building by Emily Temple, author of an upcoming novel called The Lightness, and she published this on Literary Hub. Yeah, I encourage everyone listening to this to read both of those pieces. Um, and, and even, even Michelle, actually, he, he writes a, a third piece that is a rebuttal to the rebuttal 
um, titled something like, oh, in uh, more thoughts on world building or something. But all, all three pieces are pretty short and they, they very accurately um, describe and kind of encapsulate everything that we're getting at here. Um, even even in defense of world building, uh, the point of that piece is that world building has its place. Um, it, it's just a, a place that has to be carefully carved out and carefully worked around when you're telling your story. Um, we do have some examples here of, in, in keeping with that, examples of good world building or effective and non-intrusive world building, um, specifically in, in a literary context. I want to start with, oddly enough, uh, a, a world that has the uh, word world in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jack Kirby's Fourth World. All hail the king, baby. We've mentioned Jack Kirby on the podcast before for our Justice League episode, um, which actually ties mm-hmm. into the Fourth World uh, since the yeah. character of Darkseid is mentioned and you do have the Steppenwolf character. Um, portrayed on screen with his parademons. Um, so Jack Kirby's fourth world is his own mythos within the DC universe um, with these characters called the New Gods um, who come from the planets of New Genesis and Apocalypse. Um, and I think he crafts those worlds pretty effortlessly in the first issue of these comics, it always struck me as very elegant, like very simple, direct, but but gra- but like graceful and effective. Yeah, and I mean, he writes and draws. He is the penciler uh, and, and the writer for these comics. Um, he he has a style all, all unto his own, of course, um, and he just creates these these concepts that never get fully explained, but always work and are always interesting. Um, a lot of characters have these little supercomputers, basically almost like iPhones, but can do telekinetic powers and such called mother boxes. Jack Kirby predicted like Siri. Yeah. Like the, the, the iPhone. That's, yeah. I never thought of it that way. That's wild yeah, though. Ex- except like it can just control everything. It's, you know, but again, it's not broadly defined what these things can do. And then there's stuff like there's the MacGuffin of the anti-life equation that Darkseid, the character of Darkseid, is looking for, um, who had been mentioned in the in the movie Justice League. Um, that's also not broadly defined, but it, it, it just works on so many levels. It is the main thrust of the series. It's explained away at one point that it's it's basically mind control. Uh, it's a character of one of the characters in the Forever People, these like hippies who are like... Uh, aliens uh, they say if someone possesses absolute control over you you're not really alive and that's just kind of that's the explanation of the anti-life equation and why everybody has to stop Darkseid from getting it and why Darkseid wants it and what's really funny is DC has has since gone on to like like there's a very specific formula yes that's right I think I think Grant Morrison Morrison it's like hopelessness plus despair plus whatever plus whatever divided by free will or something and like I, I I really appreciate Grant Morrison a lot of his work but like don't it's it's not an actual equation like, yeah stop it yeah <laughs> I, I think that was in final crisis i think grant morrison yes. defines it in final yes. crisis um but it's just it's stuff like that that jack kirby would never do um right you know he he introduces you know tons of villains and and new heroes throughout the series and really no one gets a backstory you know there's just there's these cool villains called the deep six they're just like these giant fish humanoid characters who just like 
cause havoc on earth and like there's no explanation for the who they are what they do um their relationship to dark side or any of the other characters they just they're agents of chaos uh in this in this larger war of uh the new gods of new genesis and apocalypse and like it just it just works it feels mythic it feels otherworldly you know no one gets nothing gets bogged down in minutia um and it's 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 been a lasting influence on comic books and films i mean the the most recent um thor film cribs a lot from jack kirby in the fourth world um and then just a lot of marvel marvel's own mythology thanos himself is cribbed from the fourth world comics he's just a copy of dark side um so you know i think jack kirby's limited world building has gone a long way especially in comic books i i don't think you have to get you know to that nitty-gritty and these these things are more uh mythic yeah um and and kind of similar to that my example is is kind of the the og himself of world building um as we know it today tolkien (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i I will go to bed for tolkien um it's kind of interesting because the way i consider tolkien's relationship to world building is kind of similar to how i view hunter s thompson's relationship to gonzo journalism Hmm. um they, they both created this thing um, and it was an approach. It was a literary style. It was it was a way of approaching um, pre-existing uh, genre or medium. Um, but it was so indelibly tied to their own uh, personal histories and worldviews. Um, it, it was like one and the same, right? Like Gonzo was one and the same with Thompson's outlook. World building from a specifically linguistic perspective was was very much one and the same with Tolkien's worldview. Um, you, you can't really separate the two. And I mean, like in theory, yeah, and anyone, if they work hard enough, can can achieve that again. But like, it would be different. It w- Gonzo to Thompson and world building to Tolkien were so individualized to them. Um, it's more or less an exercise in futility to try to replicate that exactly as they did it. So I, I, I do think the imitators of Tolkien... Um, contemporary and in, in, in the past specifically trying to do it in his way it, it, it's just an exercise in futility like, like he he brought such he he was so invested in creating the specific languages of um of middle earth he was so invested in creating quenya and, and sindarin um because they they specifically derived from his aesthetic preferences um, combined with his Catholic sensibilities, combined with his desire to get to give um, England kind of a mythic past that created the world building, that created Lord of the Rings. Um, the The world building wasn't it. It wasn't like a jumping off point for creating Lord of the Rings. It was part and parcel throughout the entire th- throughout the entire story, basically. And crucially, um, the world building never steps on the toes of of the story's themes. Um, there are plenty of examples I can think of in in Lord of the Rings where world building is absent or fails from a contemporary perspective. Um, the economics of Middle Earth are almost never really explored. Like, yes, Smaug sits upon a hoard of treasure, but the hoard of treasure is just a like a thing to be gained. It it, it, it there's no like 
there's no like economic depression that's created from the absence of all that gold right it, it's just like a, it's it's a very mythical goal to get um sexuality is almost completely absent from lord of the rings that that that's due in part because of tolkien's catholic mores um but i mean it, it does pop up a little bit i think it's mentioned like grima warm tongue lusts after eowyn and that's why he betrays rohan um but other than that like it it doesn't th that's a huge part of quote-unquote contemporary world building but it it doesn't appear in lord of the rings and it doesn't need to because that that's not the thematic point of the story being told yeah definitely i i think the the what you mentioned there you know the the economy of middle earth and you know the 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 sexual mores of middle earth and and, and stuff like that it is something that people focus on now i believe there was a an io9 piece about the the seven sins of world building that was written somewhere in like 2013 and it was like you, you right. should know how all these things work before you write your story um, and it goes back to something, you know, uh, Lincoln Michelle wrote and against world building where he's like, you're not writing an encyclopedia. And it's exactly no. like Harrison was saying, you know, um, it's, it's not a library. Um, so, you know, that, that's, and that's why I appreciate Jack Kirby's fourth world. I mean, the, the, the planets of new Genesis and apocalypse, I mean, it, it's, it's broad stroke stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's common sci-fi tropes, um, and conventions. New Genesis is very uh, heavenly and, and this, you know, very, uh, sleek designed, you know, arch futurism. And then apocalypse is just literally like, it, it looks like a death star, but it's on fire more or less you know yep. it's just full of these trenches and and a hell spawn um and it hasn't had to be explained the economy or politics of it we understand it you know and um and even Tolkien, he he did write several volumes worth of like encyclopedias for all this stuff but he kept them apart from the main story he understood that it is supplementary reference material literally refer reference material um it, it doesn't have a place in in the text of the story itself um and even the silmarillion like for all the flack it gets for basically being like reading an encyclopedia he never actually finished it in a form that he was comfortable with uh, the 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 extant text of the silmarillion um was edited and, and published by his son christopher yeah and, and that's the thing like we're not against if you want to talk about the economy of your world how things you know work how the sewage system works in a world that that's you know a, a lot of um terry pratchett's disc world series that is what he goes yes. into that is but that again is the point of his series is to yeah. talk about the minutia of a fantasy world and how it, its inhabitants go about their day and how new industries are built i mean he has you know an entire an entire book about the film industry about the post office um he has books about like the wars of ankh-morport and all these things so um that but it's the point it is what he is trying to convey it's not just supplementary material so i guess the working title i had for this episode which was against world building um, we'll have to amend that. It'll have to be like uh, m mindfulness of world building or, or world building awareness or something. I don't know. Something something pithy. Although there is some world building we are against uh, because yep. it fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we are contrarians. It's, it's in our name. So we have to shit on something a lot of people like every once in a while. Um, and that yeah. is Guillermo del Toro. Um, yep. He and... 
his films and his fans and his like whole brand. He is a brand filmmaker. He you does. Know? Like that's that is what he does. He creates a brand, you know. Yep. People are always like, Oh, look at his cool house, you know, he has all these cool statues and memorabilia for old films. It's like, yeah, I guess who yep. also does that? Joe Dante, but no one has a fucking brand around Joe Dante. Um because the man's not <laughs> interested in making a fucking brand of himself. It's true, folks. Um Yeah, where maybe we could I don't know if like this show will evolve in that direction, but maybe we could do it like in, in direct relation to direct critical takedowns of like specific artists <laughs> that are way too popular that don't deserve it. It's um, like the, but yeah, the that's the like Procon After Dark, <laughs> Procon Procon eighteen plus. Um, <laughs> when, when when we fush, fuck fishmen. Um, uh, what example do we have for Del Toro? It's Pacific here? Rim. It's, it's not Shape of Water, right, although right. Shape of Water is atrocious. But I don't know. It's world building is whatever. It's it's not the problem with that. But specifically Pacific Rim, the problem is the world building above all else, uh, or at least that's where in the hierarchy of of storytelling techniques, that is where he places world building above all else, um, much to the film's detriment. It is really just about how cool it is for robots and monsters to fight, how cool you can make the robots, how cool you can make the the monsters, you know, the the Jaegers and the Kaiju, as they're called in the film. Um, you know, what, what tricked out weapons the, the Jaegers can have, what appendages and, you know, whatnot the Kaiju can have. I think um, a, a very quick... A better example of, of doing this same thing like cool mo- cool monsters versus cool giant robots um, a good example would be uh, neon genesis evangelion i did not see that coming <laughs> i know right um but but a big part of that story is like almost deconstructing how like improbable the, these giant robots are but then coming up with cool new ways of how they would be probable and impossible in quote-unquote real life but even so much more weight is put upon the emotional interplay and the emotional arcs of the characters. I mean, t- to some degree, to, to the to the to the to the uh, indignation of the fans, like they wanted more cool robot and monster shit. When no, the whole point of that series is like a, a character study of, of depression um, and, and isolation. Um, but yeah, that, that that's just my always go to counterexample for for fuck, fucking Pacific Rim. Yeah, I mean, there. I don't think there's like a single theme or through line for Pacific Rim. No. Like maybe someone could say it's about climate change or also humanity about coming together. yeah humanity coming together. You know, kind of this Please, internationalism or even like just uh, you know trauma because the main character's trauma plays out um, throughout the yep. film. Yep. But it's just really it's never. It's never defined. Um, it, no. It's it's never foregrounded. The the it is always about the kaiju's and the Jaegers, especially the Jaegers, because the Jaegers, the robots, are the the main characters more than the actual main characters of the film. Um, yep. So you know we get to see inside of a Jaeger how a Jaeger works. We get to really feel the weight of the Jaeger and just the amount of power that goes into like throwing a punch or or the sword fighting and all this. But like. It doesn't fucking matter. Who fucking cares? Like, there was a movie in the 80s called, like, Robot Jocks, and it was about, like, just giant robots fighting each other. And, like, there's no Hell fucking yeah. explanation for anything. Also, the, the CGI in Pacific Rim sucks. Like, the only reason that the robots and giants look, look halfway interesting is because literally every single fight scene either happens when it's raining, or it, yeah, when it's foggy, or when it's literally underwater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like they, they do the Jurassic Park trick, but it's not practical. It's, like... It looks like dog shit, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. It it just I I I can't stand that movie, and it kind of baffles. Like, I I get why it's so popular, but like it, it it's just so frustrating that so many people like it for like 
very aesthetic surface level reasons and 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 they pretend that it has like some emotional resonance right. but it, it's it's completely absent that the characters are paper thin right you know as we said at the top of the episode it is about the merchandising um it, yes know, it's yes heavily merchandised film it is it is really the only reason i can think of to even make a film like this like why a producer would sign on to this movie and i mean i uh, to give a little more credit to del toro and the fans the fans that are super into it i i I do think they believe that it has meaning and there's like resonance behind these concepts and these characters and in the, in the monsters and stuff, but it's just, it's just not there regardless of how much they like it. It's just not there and it doesn't come across and I don't know what to tell you. Right. I mean, (laughs) that that that. goes back to fan theory, basically. I mean, it's, it's own version of fan theory, maybe something closer to headcanon, I guess. Um, but it's it's really God fucking that that'll be an episode <laughs> fucking that fuck I hate that fucking term. But it's it's just really not interacting with the actual work, you know, and not inter- engaging with the actual work. It's engaging with what you would prefer the work to be. So I don't know. Right. Fuck Pacific Rim and the majority of Guillermo del Toro's filmography. Um, what's our other uh, example? My bad example of of, of poor world building. Um, it's it's not a particularly awful example. It it's it's just it's a particularly notable example um, in relation to its predecessor, mm. um, which is the Legend of Korra, um, Avatar: Legend of Korra. I think it is a very poor is 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 a very good example of of shoddy world building, um, especially contrasted with, or or as contrasted with the Last Airbender. Because the Last Airbender, everyone that's listening to this episode will know what that is. We'll know the we'll know the plot beats will know the story um very good world building um very eastern inspired uh, mythology um you know th- this quest gaining gaining friends and, and attaining personal enlightenment and and rejecting imperialism and, and fighting back against it very very classic but still very fresh and innovative series um that holds up today still um and looks beautiful in terms of the artwork um but legend of korra um it feels like a fan piece. It feels like a fan outgrowth. It feels like fan fiction. Um, and fa- fan fiction will actually have to be an episode because um, on its own, I, I am not against fan fiction. Um, and, but when I say Legend of Korra feels like fan fiction, it, it feels like bad fan fiction. It feels like indulgent, um, almost like self in, in exercise and self-insert into this fictional world. The most egregious example of this I can, I can think of is there's one episode where... Um, Literally the entire episode is is concerned with like listing out and showing the rules of the pro bending sport. Like like there's a sport in the world of in the world of Legend of Korra where it's basically like amateur boxing, like three on three, where where three benders fight three other benders. In uh, the entire episode, it's like it's like this litany of the rules of of this game of this fictional game. Right. And um, in the sport itself, it 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 has some something of a role in the first in the first season but it, it really drops off after that and i i don't know it just it just feels like a wasted 22 minutes because it, it's not it's not a sports show it's not a it's not a show about the the pro bending sports it's just that, that that was just like oh i wonder how the 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 magic psychic abilities of bending would play in like a realistic example and that's fine if you're going to do an avatar role-playing game but it, it it just doesn't des- it it can't support its own episode i don't think and in the the biggest the biggest problem i have with legend of korra is it does all these ostensible quote unquote realistic examinations of of how 
bending would affect the real world, but only up to a point. Like the main villain of season one, um, he, he plays off of the resentment between benders and non-benders. And that's examined right up until he's re- he's revealed like like his motivations and everything. And then that kind of bender, non-bender tension just drops off of the rest of the series. It's it's it purports to realistically, quote unquote, realistically examine uh, the influence of bending in a realistic society only as long as it's convenient. And then it just stops. And, and that you, you can't have it both ways. And that series tries to. Yeah. Whereas The Last Airbender, it, it was consistent throughout. Right. Yeah. No, the contradiction, especially in that first season, is that uh, in a real world setting, like the the benders would be and are you know, the people with power. Yes. But yes. it wants to posit that that's good and okay because their main character is a bender it never goes out of its way to say maybe there's a problem with our cops being benders our pro sports people being benders um it's basically benders are actually oppressed when it's like no (laughs) they have all the power in this society (laughs) and what's so damn frustrating is they they had like this this quasi like communist villain in the first one in the first season who who played off of that resentment and like I thought they were going to do something cool with it or at least like carry it through the following seasons. And and that kind of was a a problem that kind of can be chalked up to the series troubled production. It was very uncertain whether there would be a second and then whether there would be a third and then whether there would be a fourth season. But, um, but still like it, it it just, it ended so it it was such a dissatisfying ending and um, I'm not going to spoil it, but just it does, it doesn't follow through. It does not. Um, So yeah, that I think about does it for our episode on world building. Um, Death to world building. <laughs> Death to the world, folks. It's going to happen anyway. So world. yeah, give it give it two decades. <laughs> um, so I, I guess just the, the the in summation, just be conscious of your world building, and and world building only 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 exists in service of story and in service of theme. Um, if, if it comes between the reader and story and theme, then it's, it, it is an example of poor world building. Very simple to figure out. Yeah, exactly. So next time you're at a party and someone just wants to talk about the world building of their favorite series, we have given you the tools to dunk on that motherfucker. <laughs> Specifically, send them our Patreon link. In this episode. <laughs> no, but um, hopefully we can continue this series of um, more yeah. didacticism, uh, the stuff that uh, y'all love, uh, <laughs> maybe. Hell yeah, hell yeah, folks. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for listening to our to our ramblings here, and we'll see you next time. See you then. They said the